fucks with it again. All right. But anyway, aside from that, uh, we're ready to go. Awesome. So, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Esther Kraku. Have I yeah. said that right? Yeah. yeah okay, that's good. <laughs> I had to check the Trigonometry podcast to see how they I know. It. Well, technically, it's Esther Kraku, but most people don't get it right because it's not in the lingo. And whenever they see it, they think it's I'm like this old Polish Jewish lady. Because um, Kraku sounds like Krakow or looks like Krakow. Not going to lie, that's how I was reading it at the start. Yeah. And then I turn up to like interviews or things like, we're expecting like this old... Polish Jewish women. Well, I'm like, clearly, I'm not Polish. At least I don't look it. So wait, people book Jewish. you without knowing what you look like? No, I've just had it in, in interviews and stuff where people, you know, like sort of just, you know, normal interviews, like job interviews and all of that. And they, they expect me to be an old Jew, Jewish Polish woman. And uh, that's far from the reality. Yes. I mean, that's definitely quite far from the reality. Yeah. Um, so you're British Ghanaian, born yeah. in Ghana. Yeah. Um, how does it feel? How does your family feel about this uh, idea that you're now the, what did you call yourself? The female Andrew Tate, I think, in the... <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Whoa, hold on, that is... <laughs> no, it was from the from the trigonometry interview. I know, yeah. I know you were just messing around. I Don't know, worry. that's hilarious. Oh my gosh. I, I, <laughs> I've never had someone say that to me. Um, how do they... Well, my friends don't know who Andrew Tate is. <laughs> My brother probably wouldn't say I'm the female Andrew Tate. Um, he would say that our views are very much aligned, and the things he says, I'll probably, I probably actually say more, not worse, but more, like more. Hard. I think Andrew Tate is quite reserved on some of the things he says, genuinely. Um, so I think I'm a bit more um, less reserved. Um, but again, I'm not talking to millions and millions of people online. It's usually just me in conversation with my friends and family, where I'm not having an influence on anyone. So I guess I can get away with saying that, but. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's weird because my parents probably have, well, no, they have more conservative views than I do. So if I'm the female Andrew Tate, they're like the godfather. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why do you think he's so, like, right, right, okay. I can see why some people dislike him, right? Mm. I can see why some people were, like, a bit outraged by his by his statements. Like, what do you think made the, like, he was banned, like, like that? Like, yeah, what do you, th I mean, what do you was, think that, that was? was? A stupid decision. I think that was... You know, when I, I kind of draw um, a parallel with the CCP in China, right? In China, you don't want to become, you know, they always say that they have the saying in Mandarin that it's the nail that sticks up that gets hammered down. Mm. So you really want to blend in. You don't want to get too successful, too rich or too known because then you become a target because at the end of the day, whether you want it or not, you have influence. Mm. And I don't think Andrew set out to have that level of influence or to grow at the speed that he did. Um, because I, I do generally think if he if he knew that would have been the case, he would have moderated or, or adulterated a little bit the things he said, not necessarily changing his opinions on things, but saying in a way that's more palatable that you can't easily clip up and put into thousands of TikTok videos that clearly make someone look bad. Mm. Uh, I think that was, I think the level of his fame became scary because the people at the top couldn't control it. And they say, oh, you know, we had all these mothers and fathers complaining to us about our young boys. That wasn't it. It was the fact that he was a very powerful voice. He was effectively the most famous man on the internet and they couldn't control that. And, you know, 
call me a cynic, but I find it very hard to believe that the people that banned them were doing it in the interests of women and of the children. When you can type in MAP on Twitter, which stands for minor attractive person, and they're literally groups of pedophiles thriving on social media. The Ayatollah of, of Iran is on literal like oh, it's on Twitter. Literal terrorists are on on social media. They actually banned the, the former president of the United States. Um, so I don't I don't buy the argument that it was out of care for anyone. I just think it was someone that they grew scared of because he was too powerful and they couldn't control him mm. i don't think anything he was saying was particularly controversial you have a you have a conversation with any african uncle and you'll say a lot worse <laughs> like, it's true yeah probably i mean i get it, it, it was crazy watching him just get perma banned immediately yeah i was like wow okay so you can't even like be vaguely controversial anymore oh he's gonna come back oh yeah definitely i mean he's not like i don't think he's like cancelled cancelled and if anything it probably blew up his brand but it did and he he will get his instagram back because what they've realized is they 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 their aims effectively backfired on them and um, he will come back on various forms um and i think his following will grow that this the the worry or i suppose the thing to be mindful of is you know he's already built such a following that it's probably people that know him and already appreciate his message i'll keep following him i think the struggle he will have is because you know a lot of what he says is focused on self-development and you know betterment and you know mindset and all of that reaching people that wouldn't naturally be inclined to him and that their first introduction to this random guy on the internet is He's been banned of everything because he's a raging misogynist. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's kind of breaking that mold. And I think he's slowly doing it. He's going on mainstream stuff. He was on Piers' show, but which I contribute on. He did an interview with um, Hugo Rifkin from, from I think it's the, the Telegraph. Um, and he's done a few mainstream stuff as well. So he will get back, but I don't think he's remotely controversial. I think an afternoon with me would probably scar more people than anything Andrew Tate has said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how the interview goes. Um... <laughs> So Liz, like, I don't want to talk too much about this because yeah. there is still five days before this will be released. So who the fuck knows what's going to happen? But yeah. I mean, generally, what on earth do you think is fucking happening in the Conservative Party? Like we're recording just as Liz Truss has been, uh, has resigned. Yeah. And it's, it's utterly, utterly insane. The state of like they have had, they had the the shortest serving chancellor aside from someone who died. Yeah. The shortest serving prime minister by quite a margin. Mm -hmm. The shortest serving home secretary. Mm -hmm. We have had five prime ministers in six. Well, we'll now have had five prime ministers in six years. Yep. Like, I don't see a way back for a long time for this party into power. It's it's a, almost like the perfect storm. I would say, um, to put my analytical hat on a little bit, uh, I think people need to understand that it's this is not just kind of a, what, like it didn't just happen out of nowhere, it didn't happen in a vacuum. I think the, and hindsight is 2020, isn't it? But the, the, the problem started with Boris because Boris was the message, but was a bad messenger. And, and there were people in within his party that didn't drink the kind of Boris Kool-Aid that pointed out, and I, I, I say Michael Gove is an example of them because even though he has a very sleazy reputation, in Westminster, mm. he said, you don't want this man to be prime minister because he doesn't understand things at the level of detail. And he has some character defects that will come back and bite the Conservative Party in the bum. And because he, he saw that, and he saw that there was a chance that this particular individual was likely to surround himself with sycophants, which he did, there wouldn't be anyone to keep him in check. Someone like Boris should have had Gove as his right-hand man because you need people that don't necessarily like you, but are willing to keep you in check for the good of the party. That's, yeah. that's how you, that's really how you do it. He, there was no better message for kind of getting Brexit done than him. And even the way they, they got Brexit done, I don't agree with. 
Um, but you know, if we're just talking about that, that was that was one of the issues. And then obviously there are relics within the Conservative Party, like how they choose their next leader, that didn't consider that these might there might be extraordinary circumstances where you shouldn't keep the country waiting for five weeks and have the sham of an election to then elect someone that the party membership wanted, but the parliamentarians didn't want, and then effectively oust her in 44 days. Uh, so what we're going to see now is the, the party, the, the party, the parliamentarians are going to get their way because they overwhelmingly wanted Rishi Sunak. Uh, the issue is now Tory members, the ones that can still stand them, can't anymore. Yeah. Oh, well. <coughs> Sorry. You can clear the background noise, I think. Oh yeah, no, I definitely. It's just easier if it's not in there. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, don't worry. Um, yeah. So now the issue is, it's likely, I suspect, going to be um, Rishi that's going to be the next prime minister and trying to steer um, kind of the ship with with the conservatives. The problem is, the conservative base don't really like him, mm. and that's why they didn't vote for him. And the, this, I think that's twofold. One, they saw him as a backstabber. He kind of unwound the whole thing with Boris. I think it was impending, so anyone who did it regardless of who took the mantle of getting rid of or starting the revolution against Boris would have got that backstabber image. But also he was the chancellor that blew half a, half a billion quid of British taxpayers' money to handle the pandemic. And it's kind of adding insult to injury. Well, it's to not way half a billion. It's not half a trillion. Half a trillion, sorry. Yeah. Not half a billion, half a half trillion. A bi- half, half a billion is a drop in the yeah, fucking bucket. Yeah, half a trillion. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That makes me, that even fills me with more dread. Um, <laughs> you know, to handle the pandemic and the kind of money he spent, there were loads of, people in the Conservative Party amongst, you know, traditional Tory voters and even sort of swing voters that said that should have at least been a conversation because now you've effectively blown all that money. We have to put up taxes to pay for it. We, you know, we have to find a way out. And now you're telling us to add insults to injury, you want to make this person prime minister. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, is, that is the offensive bit. That, I think that's what made people vote lean towards Liz Truss. Not because she's charismatic. It's not because people look at her uninspired. No, it's because at least she offered an alternative vision. She gave people hope. Whether that was even realistic is another thing because I don't think you could have actually, I, I, I literally asked a simple question, how is she going to fund this? And the, the answer was through borrowing. And I was like, well, you mm. can't fund this magical growth scheme by borrowing. That doesn't work. I mean, neither does Labour's plans funding it, the growth with, with investment in renewable energy. Again, so many issues. They're both sides of the same coin. But Rishi and Trust were not very different in terms of candidates. The only differences were, were the slight approaches to the economy, lower taxes, hopefully being offset by borrowing. And then Rishi's kind of steady the ship first and then cut taxes. Um, so that's how it happened. It's almost like a perfect storm situation. But I think people have often forgotten that, you know, about a year ago, Labour was in the same crisis, <laughs> right? And Keir Starmer was trying to get a, get rid of sort of the radicals in his party, doing things that Corbyn should have done. He was trying to move away because that's the only thing. And I think people don't understand also Labour. I mean, the, the, one of the most successful victories was, was Blair, right? But mm. following that, following Blair's victory, he effectively shot or blew up Labour's chances of having the same kind of victory to hell with devolution. Mm. Because a good chunk of the seats they won were in Scotland. All of those seats are now SNP and they're never going to change back. Mm. So now the, the, the Labour Party has an issue where they that they have to cancel out Scotland and they have to appeal to people in, in England that would traditionally not vote for them. Even if the Conservatives don't have to get a majority, they're sure not going to go to Labour. So they have no choice but to be in some sort of coalition with the Lib Dems or with whoever they, they think, which is why I said there's a gap for an actual Conservative Party in the UK, like Reform, to, to come in and fill those gaps. Yeah. Um, another thing that they don't realise is, 
well, people don't realize this ideology and um, uh, not Ian, was it Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, I think it was Ian Duncan Smith um, wrote a piece in the Times about ideology being dead, and he was saying that really, if you look at it, both Labour and the Conservatives have no choice. We're kind of stuck in a situation where we have high public spending. We we have to fight. We have to service our debts one way or another. You know. Our population is getting older. The waiting list in the NHS is growing more and more. There's not a lot of wiggle room. You can come out with all these kind of ideological um, kind of, I don't know, talking points. But the reality is we are in a very, very bad situation and no one is going to tolerate a huge hit to their lifestyle. Yes. Um, I have some horrible news for for most people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was talking to uh, Dan Tubb uh, last week. And he's a former venture capitalist turned mm-hmm. Bitcoin miner and person who podcasts about the doom of the end of the financial system. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's very inspiring. <laughs> um, but he basically thinks that there is three ways out of this. Well, four ways. Massive collapse mm-hmm. um, of, the, of the economy. Massive cuts to public spending, like making austerity look like child's play. Yep. Monstrous tax rises or some sort of technological miracle that like provides massive growth with very little investment. And I don't like any of those options, personally. Probably the third one, I think what's going to happen is the third one is going to be gradually phased in. Mm. Um, and I think that's- But like, who do we tax? Like people are- people, The thing is though, people the people worth taxing man. will leave. That's, that's the reality. The people worth taxing will absolutely leave. Mm. And I've, I've, I've been unapologetic. I, I said, if the UK gets to the point where I don't feel like there's m- not much point in me having any aspirations because I feel like that's going to be blown up by the incompetency of this government or tax system, I will leave. I, I don't make any qualms about that. Um, where would you go? Probably the US. Really? Or somewhere in the Middle East. Or just Do you back feel like, because right, I speak to a lot of people who have this like, oh, if Britain, you know, fucks it, I'm off to America. I'm like, is that, is that like a calmer more stable, more yes. like economically viable place. Like- Absolutely, because it's bigger. Mm. There are more options. That's the thing. The, the the US that we tend to see, the polarization of the US that we tend to see is more like coastal states and kind of the, the raging libs, as they call it, which I don't even like. I hate the term woke. Um, yeah, but- they, stole, they stole our word. They mm. stole the conspiracy theorist word. I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the US is probably, it's probably an option. Um, but this is this is the thing. So I, I I kind of get into these conversations with people when I tell them when I try and tell them to engage their minds, and I say, look at your life past the age of sixty five. Mm. And the reason why I I do that is because I want people to understand where a good chunk of this country are at. Mm. We have a massive welfare state that's unsustainable. We have loads of people that are dependent on on public pensions that are being financed by younger, healthier people going out to work to grow the economy to be able to pay for all these welfare spending. And those people are not having kids, so their future is not secure. They're not even owning homes, right? And I generally think one of the biggest existential crises this country is going to have is the housing crisis. Because if you, people don't feel rooted in anything, they they don't have an allegiance to the country. They don't have families, obviously. Tradition effectively dies away. And people are living longer, yes, but they're not really living longer. They're living to the limit of like, human existence, which was should have been what it is now, mm. if that makes sense. People are not dying 40 in their 40s and 50s prematurely. They're living till 80 and 90, which is what the limits of human existence are mm. or is. Um, so I tell people, and I mean, I even had this conversation with someone who said, oh yeah, I don't want kids. And I was like, okay, let me break this down for you, my dear. I used to work in a care home 
And one, statistically speaking, you are likely to regret your choice. And two, the women telling you, oh yeah, you go girl, <laughs> you know, it's your choice. They're single 40 something year old women without kids. They're not 65 plus, they're not 80 plus. They're not in a situation where the reality is the people their age, their family members their age are dying around them, which is just a fact, right? They have no one younger to take care of them. If they do a niece or something like that, at the end of the day, you're not a priority because you're not their parent. You are a secondary relative. And also you're going to be depending on the children of relatives to wipe, excuse me, wipe the shit out of your ass like I did. Right? And these are the same people that will complain about immigration or the state of the country or how Britain is no longer Britain or London is not for, for England. And I just think the things you say and the things you do have consequences. If you're talking, if you are sort of true blue conservative or even someone who's left-leaning, because I don't think people understand in the 50s and 60s, actually a lot of labor, traditional labor heartland voters, working class, were very proud of this country. They had very traditional values. Yeah, right? I mean, there was good reason to be. Exactly. But, but this is the thing, because people don't feel rooted anymore, regardless of where you lean on the political aisle. That is a crisis that you're having, a crisis of nationhood and a crisis of, of national identity. But anyway, I said two things cannot exist. You cannot complain that there are too many immigrants, but you want the same cozy, comfortable, pension-funded, you know, secure state lifestyle that people who actually could be bothered to have kids, who then had productive members of society, were able to give you that lifestyle. You, you can't say that now you want that, even though you haven't made the sacrifices that they made. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, I find it weird that the, it's like there's this whole there's like this whole sphere of of discussions that like need to be had yeah that people are so like resistant or terrified of and it, it seems to be happening sorry, it seems to be happening like more and more in in so many areas and like the one that i i i, I see it most in is the is the birth rate yeah and like to what extent do you see that as a massive problem? Because, like, for 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 the record, for people, I believe the UK's re, re, for replacement rate it has to be at two, eight. and it's at one. I thought it was one point six five, but yes, something something in in that range. So it means that we're for every person that we, or for every two people we should be having, or kids we should be having, there's one point six eight. Yeah, I mean, it's suicidal, isn't it? And the yeah. people that are having at the replacement level or above are people that traditionally a lot of right-wing conservatives would say, oh, we don't want those kinds of people. They're, they're mostly Muslims and people from the Far East in the world that immigrants. And I don't have a problem with that, but you do realize that there will be a demographic shift because those people have a very strong cultural identity that is going to integrate more, or not integrate, but become, become a more pronounced presence in the UK. And you have no choice but to deal with that because you didn't have, you chose not to have kids and raise them with your values. I'm not placing a value judgment on that. I'm just saying that's a, that's a reality. But I also, I think we should even go further and say, you know, abortion at the moment stands in one in four. So one in four pregnancies in this country are aborted. Wait, what? One in four? One in four. Whoa, that's look, a high number. If you look at the statistics, about half of those people are having second terminations. So it's not just like a one-off, like a young girl or whatever. So one in four pregnancies are aborted. About half of those are by people that have had an abortion before. First time abortions are for women, primarily in their early to mid twenties, that 40 years ago would have been happily married and having a family. One in four. So I, I, I want people to put these things into perspective because really this is, should be at the heart of the conversation that we're having. We're not yeah. having enough kids. We're not making this country kind of fun, um, kid friendly. We have an energy crisis that is really going to impact future generations as much as you know the current generations we're seeing. The, the housing crisis is obviously a big issue as well. And we don't have a housing crisis in the sense that people are homeless. Mm. We have a housing crisis in the sense that people are just renting and they can't get into onto the property ladder. Why does that make a difference? 
purely big chunk of the reason is it's cultural. People in France and Germany and mainland Europe don't have a problem renting, right? One, because they have a better social fabric. They have family members that tend to help them out. And it's just the nature of kind of, you know, renting in that part of the world is just different but here in the uk people want to own and the reason why people want to own is because in the 80s and 90s british home ownership was way way higher above the average for many european countries so it kind of spurred this idea that that is kind of the british dream owning your home having a family having your stake in society church of england kind of baby boomer you know outlook on life oh yeah my mom was fully fully like bugged me for about a decade mm -hmm about from 15 to 25, basically about, oh, I bought my first house at 25. You yeah, should, you know, exactly. You I bought it for 16p. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, she worked very hard to get it at 25 because she was in a nurse's salary and she just paid the thing off. So like, like full respect to her. I look forward to half the house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <It was> subtle. <laughs> well, I've told her it's a nice house. She's better not sell it. Um, but my brother's just bought a house. Um, but because he's quite, he's like, he came out of uni and then almost immediately went into the career like path that he very much wanted to go into in like cybersecurity. He settled down. He's in Northern Ireland. He's not leaving. So he's like, well, I might as well buy a house. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But like the house prices over there are so much cheaper. cheaper yeah. Like you would, you would die if you saw how cheap the houses in yeah. like just outside of Belfast are like uh, compared to here. But like, why do you think that the homeownership that people view homeownership as like the stability that is required for them to then have a family, like when that's not happening in in Europe, in like Europe. you've said. Like, what what's the thing that's happening here that's? I not generally just think it's a cultural difference, and I also think I think that it might have something to do. I mean, this might be sort of the ge ge geographically um, our, our sense of orientation around this topic. So the UK has the same population, similar, very similar population as to France, but France has double the land, ma land mass, right? It's a lot more spread out. Urbanization is a lot more. I'm pretty sure it's say, three times the land mass, actually. Just over twice. But it's also a lot more palatable. So for instance, um, urban pockets in, in, in many um, French or suburban pockets in many French towns are very family oriented, mm. right? You can, the transport links are good. Um, it's just, it's it's more family friendly. In the UK, you have a few big cities and then everyone is squished in like a mini metropolitan area around those cities that pushes the house prices up. And now you have this ridiculous green belt, which is hard to actually get planning permission through because it's now been a wedge within our housing market that you can't build around it. So we're now even more squished for space. Um, and I, I generally, and this is not happening in the highlands of Scotland, right? This is happening in primarily Southern England. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very densely populated parts of Northern England, some parts of the south um, west coast of Wales, um, the kind of area surrounding Glasgow and Edinburgh and Scotland, and I suppose to a lesser extent Belfast, which is even though it's a lot cheaper. Hmm. So these are this this is where effectively you find the biggest issue with, with with housing, right? In these kind of densely populated areas. And most people don't like flats, they want a house, they want a you know backyard. So again, space and all of that. Um I but that's basically what it boils down to. It's a cultural attitude. Um, because there's a sense of like, that is your stake in society, where I suppose in, in, in more European countries, 
the, just the attitude is completely different. The lifestyle is completely different. I mean, it's in Italian families, for instance, it's not unusual for like generations to live under the same roof or in like similar areas. You know, a lot of young people in the UK, when they go to uni, for instance, and that the uptake of that really skyrocketed under Blair, they tend to kind of stay in the areas that they went to uni in because they kind of have an affinity to that. They start relationships with uni and stay there. Or they don't necessarily go back home unless they're in like some of the biggest cities like London and Manchester where the job opportunities are plentiful. Um, so there's so many factors that contribute to that, but that, that, that's mainly it. And trying to shake that is kind of, I think there's two, the two things that sort of Brits worship is the idea of home ownership in the NHS. That's, those are the two kind of pillars of what it means to be a Brit. Mm. And I think any government that is willing to rock the foundations of that is risking a lot. Um, but I also yeah. think it's, you know, I think the housing crisis is more existential than anything else, really. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I've... Not sure if I'd put that as top of the most the list. I think the the replacement rate, and honestly, actually, top of my list is financialization of the economy. That's what mm-hmm. I think is like the one of the biggest issues in uh-huh. Britain. So, have you read or have you heard of uh, Nicholas Jackson? No. Okay, so he's an economist, um, and he wrote a book called The Finance Curse. Mm-hmm. So the basic premise is that uh, in the same way, like country a lot of countries in the developing world are afflicted by the resource curse where like all of the the economies are like banana republics basically exactly so they all become like focused on this one industry so it, it like causes brain drain um like over investment yeah it just it just it ruins all the other industries in the country mm-hmm. and his case is that that's happened in the united kingdom and he he argues that oh, no what is it i think he said that there was four trillion pounds of growth that had been lost out in Britain over the last 40 years as a result of the financialization of the economy. That's very conservative, actually. Uh, Quite possibly. So that's what I consider to be the biggest problem. And I was talking to uh, Marina Perkis uh, last two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and she said we were were arguing about whether Labour would fix, whether whether Labour was really a better option than the Tories. And I was just like, I don't see them solving any of the major problems in Britain. And I think what will happen is we will have five years of a Labour government, then the Tories will stand up and go, look, they couldn't solve anything and we're back exactly where we are now. Yeah. And uh, I don't even think they'll even get... I, I, I genuinely think the fact that Scotland is out of the equation, they know they're really stitched up. Mm. I genuinely think we're going to move to PR. We're going to move to the era of British policy. How do you see us getting there? Because I don't see the Labour Party backing it. Oh, no, I do think they have no choice. Um, sorry, I think we've kind of moved on because we're talking about the financialization of the economy, which I think is quite an interesting um, topic. And I think you're right. Um, I think, you know, I mean, that's what Liz Truss was trying to change, right? Um, you know, this country oh, that's... Oh, by raising the cap on bankers' bonus, or sorry, uh, removing the cap literally. on bankers' bonus. I mean, I mean that, I do agree with it. I just think the optics were terrible and the timing was really bad. <laughs> um, because I, I do think actually, you know, the caps on bankers' bonuses have made them more irresponsible actors. Um, and I think anyone who's worked, worked a sales job will actually agree with that. They would say, if you have more risk, you behave more responsibly because it's your bottom line. Bankers, because of the banker's cap, bankers' actual salary, base salaries has increased a lot um, because they're not, you know, these banks aren't drawing the actual ta- real talent if they keep the, the banker's salaries at the same level. So the, the, the idea was they raised it, but then if you have a, a minimum guaranteed salary, your tolerance for risk is a lot higher. Mm. Right. And so you behave a lot more responsibly. It was actually completely counterproductive. And um, I say this as someone who worked in sales after school. um, And I said, you need to make these bankers work for it. But at the end of the day, they need to work for it. So they are actually paid what they're worth. And a lot of the times that might not be even as high as their salaries, their base Mm. salaries. But that's a different conversation. Um, What were we talking about? Sorry. 
oh, uh, whether whether Labour. Labour were actually better than the Conservatives. Because I have not, since arguing with her for two weeks, mm-hmm. I have now looked at the shit that has gone down over the past two weeks and gone, Jesus Christ, there oh, are so could, many problems. We worse. just, we need, we need some adults in the room yeah. to attempt to address the multitude of problems that yeah. are stacking up. Make me prime minister. No, but the it's thing like, is. No, don't make me prime minister. I don't want to be prime minister. It could be infinitely worse. Well, this, ha- this is what happens. They're not paid enough. So you're drawing mediocre talent. No, I, I swear to God, you know, it, it, it could be, it actually, it's probably exactly the same in the Labour Party. You know, you have Keir Starmer effectively trying to shun out really toxic members of his party, which the Democrats in the US really should have done. Very, very extreme, very hard left gender ideologues um, that are really going to tarnish their party because, you know, you have many people in the Red Wall, for instance, very traditional working class people that said, you know, I've never even met a trans person. Why are they now at the top of your issues? Like, with what? You know what I mean? I mean, it's and, a very fair point. And then also this argument that suddenly nationalization of all of our industry is going to solve it. And I'm like, look, I'm not... Nationalization is on a case-by-case basis. And I generally say this as someone who says it doesn't work for all industries. For the train industry, for instance, it makes sense because there's no real competition. Mm. You have all these foreign European countries that have a stake in our rail system that have effectively priced out people like myself from using the rails. They're inefficient. Um, you know, they're, they're not, they don't run on time. There's not enough of them. We don't have like a Swiss model where you can get from, you can go to Tesco on the train. I want to invite you to my home country and you could like, I come to England and I, I feel like I've entered the next century in the quality of the public transport. Really? Come to Northern Ireland. Oh my God. Like anyone from Northern Ireland who's listening to this will just be pissing themselves laughing. Like about <laughs> translating. Yeah, it's literally like I, my mom lives on, without traffic, you can drive from like the city hall in the center of Belfast to my mom's house in about 20 minutes mm-hmm. with no traffic, right? It's the bus from her house to the center of Belfast is once an hour at best. It's twice a day on Sundays. Like we have, like England does not know what it has yeah. in terms of public. <laughs> yeah, obviously the trains are stupid they're expensive. Shocking. No, but the buses are even like, back. Well, the thing is, I live just outside. I live just outside North London. They're about like an hour, once an hour. Oh yeah. Oh but yeah, it's, it's that bad. Mm. It's really, once you get out of London, it is mm. a complete shit show. Um, but like I said, we don't have the Swiss model, for instance, where you can go to like, you know, you have bankers literally leaving their cars at home because the public transport system is so slick and efficient mm-hmm. that you can, you know, just go to the supermarket, pick up your stuff and then go home. And I said, you know, that is a model that would actually fit the British landscape better, actually, because of the nature of our landscape, having interconnected trains and stuff like that. I hope we have overhead trains because that would be really cool, like trains in the sky. That'd be so cool. Um, <laughs> I want one going through a building. I saw that in Thailand. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? But back to the nationalization <laughs> argument, I just think that doesn't work for every industry. And I'm not seeing anything from the labor side that inspires any confidence because, again, they are all halfwit. Our political system is completely taken over by half it. And it's because of the nature of, the way the system is, the kind of people, talent it draws. You're not gonna get the best talent. It is a fact. I'm sorry, there are cleaners in the House of Commons that are advising us on economic policy. Has the world gone mad? Quite possibly. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we talked about this a bit before. Like, I, I'm not sure paying them more is the, is the answer. I, like, no, I the feel like should be drawing better talent. Yeah, the nature I think, of the party system. Yeah, it's probably more about the way in which you select the candidates. Because I don't know if you've read uh, Isabel Hardman's "Why We Get the Wrong Politicians." No. Uh, brilliant. I'm sure she's probably on the same. Brilliant thing. book about, and it's basically about the way in which both parties of the major parties 
um, select their candidates and it selects for people who are a party insiders, have a lot of uh, free time, uh, have the cash to support themselves while they attempt to run or attempt to get selected two, three, four times. They're the people who are known to be well connected with people who will go out and canvas for them. Yeah. Like. It's, it's nothing to do with someone who would be a good legislator. There is nothing about the system, and I mean nothing, that provides like, it's like, oh, well, here's why someone who is a good legislator will be like someone who like thinks through the laws that we want to pass. I didn't just go to Oxford, study PPE, get a job as a sort of MP's secretary and then kind of rush it up or go through the civil service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that, that's basically, she's spot on. Um, and the kind of talent, you don't incentivize real talent with the kind of the structure of the party system, but also how much they're paid, you know, the level of respect they get. It's just, it's just a complete shambles. Um, so, you know, I, I generally think our political system is rotten. I do think the natural transition would be towards proportional representation. But then you're going to have an issue that you have in many part European countries, like in Italy, for instance, that has had more coalition governments than most people change their knickers in a year. Um, and this has been going on since the days of post-World War II. Or Bel the Belgians that had, didn't have a government for was it like 590 days or something obscene. Yes, yes. Um, and they got on with Again, it. Again, but come to Northern Ireland, we have a thousand days. We had no government. Exactly. So, Over a thousand days. Um, but I do, I do think that is going to be, and then you're going to get a lot more gridlock. You're going to get, and the thing is, so real things don't really get done. The only ways things get done are revolutions or wars. Re re yes, that's what I'm scared about. Yeah. I'm concerned that we're approaching this precipice upon which we are just sort of climbing this mountain made of all of our own problems. Yeah. And eventually everything is just going to come like crashing down underneath us. I think the closest we got to a real revolution was Blair. Really? I do think so. You don't, I, right. Like, would you would you not put the, the 2017 Corbyn um, no, campaign he, in that? In he, that? he was noise. No, he, but like, I mean, in terms of like, uh, he was one, he was like half a percentage point away from Theresa May's Conservative Party. That feels like a big shift ideologically was very close. No, the but the thing is, if you look at, if you analyze sort of his support back then, it was a lot of young people. It was a lot of young people that finally got mobilized into politics and mm -hmm. they do what young people do stupidly and believe socialism works. Um, I think the reason why I would go back and say that Blair was the closest we came to revolution is one, he oversaw devolution, which I do, I do think was a mistake, especially to the extent that it was done. I was saying that one of the biggest mistakes Boris did, and he has he has many. You could write a whole trilogy on the mistakes Boris Johnson Boris Johnson has made. Um, was giving the devolved powers independence over COVID policy, um, because I was saying you know you don't get to bankrupt your local economies in this. Expect Westminster to pick up the tab, which is what Mark Drayford and Nicola Sturgeon did. Because at the end of the day, the COVID figures actually show that they were very similar across the board per capita, and yet we had to pay out a lot more to shore up the the Welsh and Scottish economies at the expense of, of of Westminster because they wanted to play petty politics, right? These are the kind of things that, you know, it wasn't even brought into the conversation because the revolution that Blair ushered in is this idea of really separate identities under this really loose rubric of Great Britain mm -hmm. became so entrenched that now you expect, you know, in a national emergency for, 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 for devolved powers to behave independently. And that that is that juxtaposition is even hard to understand. How like most European countries look at us and they're like, what? What do you mean? You have regions, right? You have regions with with, with unique identities, but you are still one country. And I think the French do this moderately well. I mean, you still have the issue of kind of um, regional disparities. Um, you basically have uh, Paris and Marseille, but they're, they're getting better because there's all that spirit of like bringing home the bacon, which is what you get in a republic like France. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's either a war or a revolution and something big will need to happen. I do think if, if the UK moves towards proportional representation, which is what I'm hoping for, um, and I'm not even that optimistic with that, we're going to have a bunch of kind of smaller governments or smaller parties that are factions of bigger parties kind of breaking up and rearing their head and exerting the right amount of pressure on parties over key issues, like with the Conservatives, it was Brexit. If it wasn't for Nigel Farage and his whole UKIP thing, that would never have pushed the Conservatives to even call a vote on it. With the Labour Party, it's definitely going to be the more socialist part of the the, the, the party, which, you know. But that kind of model, that kind of setup, means that you're going to have um, a bit less polarised politics, in a way, even though you have all these coalition governments, because at the end of the day, what ends up happening is such a diluted, weak compromise that mm. things just keep ticking along. Yeah. Times that that time's wonderful. Right yeah, it's now, great, isn't it? it? Um, My advice to anyone listening <laughs> to this, because I say things on a political level. I, I I like to analyze things on a national political level, but I also think people should analyze their own lives very on a very detailed level. I say this, and it's you know you can listen to political scientists and political analysts kind of looking at where global trends are heading, and then you can you can also have a conversation with people about what they do with their own lives independently, right? Yes, keep in, like you know understand politics and know what's going on, but you need to plan your life to be cognizant of various realities that will be taking place. So for instance, I'll say, if you can get a second passport, do it, right? Try and make as much fuck you money as possible so you're mobile and not beholden to a system. And then use the fuck you money. Too many people with fuck you money don't, don't say use it. Exactly, yeah. and, 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 don't, and don't look homeless. If you have fuck you money, dress well, you know, be a pimp. Um, <laughs> and also um, don't be beholden to one um, sort of form of wealth creation, right? Diversify, get a bit of crypto, get a bit of gold, get a bit of property, you know, have a bit of loose cash, have a cash. I'm telling, I tell people this, not because I want to kind of um, scare them or make them kind of change their life based on a conspiracy theory, but really in a world like this, in the world that we're living in now, you need to manage your risk, the risk management of your life needs to be at 10. And you need, you need to surround yourself with people that get it because at any point in time, I mean, the fact that I, I get so sad when I see people that are so disillusioned with our political system. And I get it, it's depressing, but it's like they act, it's like a almost like a hopelessness, like just yeah. a complete and utter helplessness. And I just think, what exactly do you think a politician is gonna do for you? Like I, I'm pretty happy if the government just doesn't screw up the economy and gets out of my way. Mm. And that's what most people's attitude should be. Protect us, make sure the state apparatus, apparatuses that are built to protect us, like our defense, like our police and all, mm. law and order actually work. Mm you know, keep taxes reasonably low and don't get in my way. That's literally it. I don't want the policeman arresting me for something I've said on Twitter. Um, but you have people that have the complete opposite. Every time this happening, let's set up a new government branch to monitor this or a new government branch to, you know, subpoena, or like all these things. I, and I think there's genuinely a psychology of like a mental rot mm. where people don't really see a way out of any situation outside of what the government is willing to do. I mean, there are people that their lives depend on everything that comes out of politicians' mouths. Like you see them crying and I've met loads of politicians. You're not going to have that kind of influence on my life. Absolutely not. I will, you have to make a way for your own life. Yeah. I yeah, just well, think crazy. <laughs> their, their mood ebbs and flows on the tweets of Zara Sultana. Uh, oh, she, she's this country's AOC. Honestly, bless her. Oh, I actually think she's kind of, she's like, I think she's less misguided than, than I now think that AOC is. I actually think AOC she, I think she, thick. I think I think she I think Zara Sultan is actually more genuine in a way. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. That's just my. I, I don't think I, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's authenticity. That's their problem. <clears throat> I think they're well, both no. products of, of 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 the education system. And I, I, I've, I've thought about this as well. AOC went to a very sort of 
glossy American university where she studied, I think, econ and international relations or something. Yeah. And she was grilled about something to do with precisely that. And she was like, well, I'm not an expert. I was like, my dear, you just spent three years getting a degree in it. You'd think you'd have some sort of, I don't know, coherent thoughts on, on particular issues. I think Zara is just, Zara's just young and dumb, all right? AOC is thick. That's the title There's of this difference. podcast right yeah. there. <laughs> no, but this is the difference. You can grow out of being young and dumb, all right? You can't, you, you, it's very difficult to grow out of being thick. I don't think she's thick though. AOC is thick. No, there's some intelligence yeah. there. Like you don't, you don't, like unless there's money behind her that we don't know about. There is a right? lot of money behind but, her. No, but I mean, right. That we do know about. But <laughs> I don't think you become, I don't think you displace a sitting congressman who's been there for, it was like 20 years or something out of nowhere without being smart in some way. But this area that the district that she got was going as blue as it can get. Yeah, so but I just mean, to, I just mean to like, to, to even just to have the, this like, you have to have, I don't know, again, like the I said, balls. maybe the balls yeah, and like, you and have her, to have some sort of like strategy and like some sort of vision of how you're going to do it before something like that is possible. No. Like you don't luck into that, I think. You, you actually do, especially in the social media area that we're living in. She was mostly <laughs> pop, no, seriously, she was, she's, she's like, a, she's, she's more a celebrity than a politician. And she was mostly propelled by these dumb blue ticks on social media that were like, oh my gosh, girl power, this bug-eyed weirdo with two brain cells is in politics, yay. She was in a very blue district. And this is, this is not even coming from me, this is coming from Nancy Pelosi. Mm. Nancy Pelosi said this, right? She was like, this is, this is not, like she was like, I admire her spirit. She was trying to be kind of coy about it, but you know, yeah. she's in a very blue district. It's, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to do what she did. And also, yes, yeah, she did have a lot of support. She did have a lot of wind in her sails. She's not a masterful political strategist at all. She is, moderately coherent, which is not really saying something because I generally think the standard of a lot of kind of public conversations in the US are much lower IQ than the UK. Oh, Quite yeah, frankly, definitely. what we're, what we're dealing with here in the UK is a blip in America. Have you ever seen an American political um, like campaign ad? Yes. It's yes, shocking. It's hilarious. It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's I just think a lot of things in the UK, US, in the public sphere or any, wherever there's sort of public conversation is just dumbed down. I'm not saying this to say that Americans are stupid. I'm just saying no, that's that the, the quality. Like, it's, it's just a fact. Like, look at the the, the medic, like sort of pharmaceutical drugs ads, and this. Talk to your doctor about Zinopen, and then yeah, it's like could cause anal leaking, brain farts, and it's just like rushed off. It's like eighty percent of their ads as well. Like, and I'm, just saying, I'm sorry, what anal leaking? For my stroke meds, should you even be recommending my stroke meds? Like, surely that is the responsibility of a medical professional, i.e., my doctor. Uh, so I, I think we're comparing apples and oranges here. Um, it's fair enough. Like, I want to go back to something you said actually about the the helplessness that people feel about, like, when they they feel helpless because they feel the government is doing the wrong thing and therefore their life is like doomed doomed yeah like you see the, that in the in the just stop oil people no. who i'm i'm gonna try and go down to parliament and interview one of them live okay because um, i'd like to talk to they're them they're thick i'm just telling you this now that's i mean i i will reserve judgment for speaking to them but their videos suggest that they haven't really thought things through very much they're just a bunch of petulant brats that never got a backhand when they were kids I <laughs> that's it <laughs> Oh, if they were my kids, oh Lord, I would drag you by your ear and whoop your ass for all the BBC cameras to see. Do you know what? Do you know what it is? Like, I feel like the Extinction Rebellion people were a bit better than the Just Stop Oil people. Oh, Because I had, I had like, but like, right. I have a lot of respect for anyone who is able to come up 
with viral, impactful, peaceful protests. I think that's a like but it's yeah, it, it's like and the, yeah. the Extinction Rebellion people they partied, they blocked a bunch of bridges in London. But mm -hmm. you know what they did do? They worked with the emergency services to make sure that they only blocked the bridges that were the London Marathon route, mm -hmm. so that all of the emergency services had had like their own plan already in place, mm -hmm. so that they could go around it. And it's like the just stop no, no oil people are just sitting there with the ambulances being stopped. And I'm like, mate, go sit in the, like, if you think this is the biggest issue, and if you think that like protesting can make the politicians do something, sit in their fucking offices. Exactly. Don't stop the traffic in Croydon. What is that doing but except you know, pissing the, people off? The thing is, they're not scared to do that because this is the UK. <laughs> go to America. Go, go do that in America. Go do that in Russia. Go do that in China. Go do that in Ghana. We don't even play cricket in Ghana. We would all have cricket bats. Just waiting for you. <laughs> I mean, I don't like. It's you know one of the beautiful is, things about this country is that people can protest. Hold on, love but you, that. did you see that the, when they were spilling the milk, they went to Harrods oh, and yeah, all of these fuck super. That. No, no, fuck hold on. Ask yourself why they didn't go to an Afro Caribbean shop <laughs> or an Asian shop. <laughs> oh, yes, or a Pakistan, Ma Mahmoud's convenience store <laughs> in Brixton. Why didn't they go there? Oh. I'd say probably they may not be as well received. They will not come out with all their teeth intact. That is why. And that's the difference. That is the difference, right? When people know there's a real threat of violence, you know, they act differently. It's the same thing with people that say horrible things on Twitter. I always, I have a rule for myself. I won't say anything on social media that I couldn't say to someone's face, mm. right? And I think most people, most sane people should function by that rule. But the reason why you have a lot of people that say things on social media that they wouldn't say in, in real life is because there's no threat of violence. This is the same reason why like you wouldn't go and shout the n-word in Hackney. You'd get your, you, like you'd get your face kicked in. You know what I mean? I mean, Hackney's pretty white these days, man. Like <laughs> I mean, look, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't even shout like certain things in Hackney because I'm like, I like my face. Mm. <laughs> so, no, but point taken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, the helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever COVID came along, right? Mm -hmm. And like I have in my life traditionally been fairly left-wing, mm -hmm. right? I think the government could do a lot of good. I think that perhaps that was naive. <laughs> um, oh, sir, you were left when you were young. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, but I'd never experienced a government be like my friend used to say the re like he used to like we used to talk about the, the gun issue in America. And we talk about how um, I, I was like, look, I don't really understand this like defense against the government gone tyrannical. Mm -hmm. But I get that like you're five hours from a police station. You want a gun yeah. at your house. It's like, fair enough. Yeah. We don't even understand what that's like in Britain to be four hours from the nearest police station. It's like, I think it's even more than that. But yeah, yeah but like, but generally that's the argument that I was just like, well, you know, fair yeah. enough. Now I see, and I'm like, holy shit, the government should be like stopped at all things. Like I was so red pilled. Yeah. Like I still think the government can do some good in a lot of areas, but I just, in every way, I feel their power needs to be limited, right? Yep. And I, COVID happened. And I was just finished um, a ski season. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't entitled to any money during COVID from the British government, yep, nor, the, nor the Austrian government. Mm -hmm. um, even when I went out to Austria after they told me during the second lockdown, winter lockdown, that the thing was gonna open, I flew out, arrived, and then they decided, oh, just another week, just another week. Then they were like, oh yeah, we'll do takeaway. We'll, we'll let you have your, your bar outside. And I was like, okay. Fuck it, I can deal with that. I'll do anything. I'll wear six coats and stand in in, the, in minus twenty. Fine. Mm -hmm. I yeah. needed the money. Um, and then the day before, they were like, "Actually, no, you can't do that." But like the entire time, mm -hmm. I was like, 
was the first time in my life I'd ever been unable to get a job and make some money. Yep. Because normally I always went hospitality. I've done restaurants since I was 15, bars, and like I've never been unable to get a job. I lived in Canada for a year, made basically zero money as a writer, but I was still able to go and do some hospitality work, keep the bills being paid. Yep. During COVID, everything shut. And I was just like, hang on. Yep. Like I, I, and, and when that happened, I was just like, I will never be in this position again. I will never and allow myself, fault. exactly. I will never allow myself to be at the mercy of the government. Yeah. And, and I don't understand how no one else, or well, not no one else, but how, how the entire country hasn't had this realization yep. that they fucked us. And I think more people have had that realization than you would think. And I think it's because of now, what we're going through now, the blowback. Mm -hmm. And even as much as the government is trying to blame prices rising and the energy crisis on, on, on Putin, it's like, well, you know, they were rising before the invasion. Hmm. The The threat of inflation was mentioned if you shut the economy down or effectively crash your economy against a brick wall, right? All of these these conversations were had many times and many places over, you know, the, effect, the effects of putting your country in uh, your economy in a coma and an artificial coma, coma has consequences, right? We said these things and no one listened to us. And even Rishi Sunak came, came out and said, you know, there was no debate around COVID policy and that's what I would never want to reenact. And I just thought, you motherfucker, why didn't you say anything at the time? Oh, that's right. You were borrowing five, half a trillion dollar, uh, pounds to, to effectively- to all of their pay people and donors? To pay people like who signed an employment contract to stay at home and watch Netflix. Not people who are self-employed, not people who had businesses to run. You had family businesses that run, had been running for 20 years that effectively shut overnight. In the space of two weeks, you had someone's legacy destroyed because of this COVID and there was no conversation about it. If you didn't want to stay home, you were COVID denier, you wanted to kill granny, but then you saw those BLM activists, those twats outside gathering in the tens of thousands for something that didn't even happen on British soil, yelling, don't shoot a police and putting all of our lives at risk. Even though at the time, more black and um, ethnic minority people were more likely to, to get seriously ill from COVID than other groups in this country. I mean, it was just, infuriating but this is the thing this is why i said I've, I've always been very kind of independent minded in the sense that i just want the government to leave me alone and do the bare minimum mm. protect us from each other law and order you know diplomacy that sort of thing don't come and shell in the agenda by these globalists or these wf agents none of that i just want to be able to thrive and to be left alone mm. um but you have people that even I, th I think covid made them realize more but there's still people that just simply don't get it because it's, it's a crisis of identity, right? I think part of the reason that I have always felt the way that I have felt about the government and limiting government power is because I, I, I have, I'm very rooted in something. I have a very strong cultural identity. I'm Ghanaian. I was raised in the Anglican church. I'm, I'm naturally very socially conservative, even though I I'm, I'm tend to be more centrist on a certain policies. I don't have a crisis of identity. I know that if anything happens, I can go to my relatives. I have family. I plan on having my own family, so I don't fear for my future being insecure. I know that if I, if me and my, my brother wanted to buy a house, me and my family will try and pull resources. We'll try and live in the family house longer. You know, And this is the thing, you see this with a lot of ethnic minority communities in this country. So I don't really have a sense of identity. So I don't, 
feel the need to rely on the government but you have people and they think oh you know i don't want to be religious i don't want to be fine but again there is a crisis of identity and we're not talking just on an individual level because individually we all we all differ to some extent we're talking about a national level on a societal level that feeling of of lack of rootedness really does have real world implications that's why people don't see the point of having a kid of kids or family or you know taking care of your relatives when you're older i i mean i have some harrowing stories about when i worked in the care home but there was one example of a lady who um um, I went to clean her flat and it looked like a bomb site. And I asked my manager what the hell happened. And she was like, she was so depressed. The NHS took her to a public hospital and then a public care home. And I was like, do you know how depressed you have to be for the NHS to take notice? You have to be not eating, losing weight, effectively losing your cognitive abilities because you're just living a life of complete utter meaninglessness. And I said, what happened to her family? Why haven't they collected her stuff? Because she'd been out of that place for seven months. And they were like, they don't want to know, right? And I'm like, she has kids? She's like, yeah, they do not want to know, right? And, you know, if you grew up in a traditional family, if you grew up with certain cultural ideals, your parents are, are effectively your responsibility in the same way that your children are responsibility. Hand go, hand come. You take care of each other. You have a solid family unit, right? And that has all broken up now because people are so atomized that they believe, well, she didn't have to have me or she shouldn't have done this. And I'm not saying that the kids are necessarily at fault because I don't know, maybe their mom was a raging abusive bitch. But I'm just saying... I'm just saying that the social fabric that keeps society together is completely broken. People don't have a sense of identity. And that is why there is this crutch on being so attached to the government. And I think what I'm noticing, especially in the US, is there's a move away from that where people are saying, okay, COVID made me wake up. You're trying to take away my guns and now you're telling me I can't work. Well, we, you know, we have I have an issue here. And so they're more, we have people that are not necessarily you don't see them and think right wing that are leaning right, mm. right? Because they're seeing the value of that. Mm. They're seeing the value of, of being a part of a community and they're not necessarily going down the religious route, but I do think there is a place, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in society. Mm. And I think that it's the crisis is more acute in the UK because the Church of England is effectively a lame duck. It doesn't mean anything. It's symbolic. That's it's, a joke. It's, it's, I mean, it symbolized the decline of, 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 of really Britain because the Church of England rose at the peak of the empire. It was the strongest. It was such a huge cultural institution. And as Britain has declined, so has the Church of England and its influence. And you actually have a lot of Church of England um, clergymen and members moving to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is still really rooted in a very strong sense of identity and tradition. Um, so, you know, and I, I don't say this to, to, to kind of preach to people, but I say this to, to wake people up. And to don't, if you ever feel like you lack meaning or sense of purpose, or you really want to understand um, aspects of, of, of life or the meaning of life outside of what, it, what is just at your fingertips or what you physically see, or like something that spiritual has a more um, philosophical faith-based approach, don't, don't take that lightly, right? Your soul means something. Everyone has a soul and it means something. And you have to, you have to wake up with a sense of purpose and with a sense of identity every single day to get out into the world and say, come what may, I will get something done and I will be a positive influence. And people don't have that approach. That we now have this sort of cult-like movements in the LGBT kind of gender queer space. And then we have it with kind of this obsession, left-wing socialist kind of groups that are believe that the government is a solution to all their problems. And then you have, I mean, even on the right, you have really sort of, white nationalists and all these crazy kind of identitarian groups. They're all mini cults and they've broken up because society has lost its way and it's lost its sense of identity. I mean, the queen dying was a huge blow to society. She wasn't a religious figure, but she represented something. Oh, I don't know. I would argue she's a quasi-religious figure. Well, yeah. I mean, I would argue the NHS is more quasi-religious than the queen, but I do think she represented something very deep and meaningful to this country. And, and I say, when I say these things, I don't say it because 
you know, I don't say particularly to myself. I'm good. I'm I'm very solid. I I I, I don't. I I'm very happy. My outside life, outside of what I do with my career and with technology and social media and all that, is very solid. Mm. I have a very close relationship with my family. I have goals, and I'm you know the kind of people I keep around me were very similar in our approach to life. I don't say that for myself. I'm not worried there. I say this because I really want people to take that seriously because I can't imagine what kind of what the French have this thing called dans le flou, which is like just kind of this floating mm. existence or something that's just floating. I can't imagine what that feels like yeah. because then you become more reckless. You 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 don't you you find it easier to jettison the established wisdom of the past. Mm. I've had old people telling me they're scared of young people now because they're just like, you know, back in the day you would greet your elders. Yeah. Right? You would treat them with respect. You mm. would you would think that someone who's lived on this planet for 60, 70 years knows something you may not know, you snot nosed brat at 15. Right, but then you okay, have boomer. yeah, like, no, but it's true. That's, that's the response. But it's true, and then you have all these like fetuses online, these young <laughs> adults with a bloody keyboard, and they're oh. getting mouthy. And I just think, oh. where yeah. has society gone? Um, so yeah, I, I do think the helplessness is a much deeper, uh, deeper philosophical issue, and this crisis of of of, of identity that we're having in the UK. Um, I want to. I want to come back to the the God shaped hole in society definitely in a minute. But I do want to ask, like, because I see this 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 brand of person mm. that exists in the world. Yeah. And they think the Tories are fascists. Yeah. Okay. They want <laughs> the government to take everything over. They think Brexit is the source of all evil. Yep. Um, and but primarily. They call the government fascists and authoritarians, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of them in the Tory or Conservative Party are want to be authoritarians. Yeah. Right? I, I don't mean, disagree I mean, with them. That, that exists in virtually almost every politician. But yeah. I mean, it probably exists in almost every single person, if yeah, we're going to yeah, be honest. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But I, I watched them complain about like the, the, the protest bill recently. And I watched them talk about like just anything that yeah. the Tories do. Like, I mean, they've done some horrendous, obscene things yeah. that like are, are horrible, horrible, like horribly antithetical to the thing that we're meant to stand for in Britain. Like the online harms bill, like loads of stuff they can point to. But when it came to the COVID policies, they said fucking nothing. Yep. They were fine Some with these fascists. The people, no, but the, the people they are calling fascists, like this, like, I cannot get my fucking head around this. Yep. I want to slap them and be like, explain yourself. But like, they, they want, they, got they the, wanted they the got fascists the to have un, unlimited power. Mm -hmm. They wanted the, they wanted the fascists to have unlimited power. I, what? But, but, but put it, put it, look at it this way. Do you think those people would have the views that they had if they came from a two-parent home where they felt like they were rooted in a society that had that had something to offer them, that felt like they had a strong sense of national identity and that the country they were they were in mattered and was a primarily fundamentally a force for good. Yes. I witnessed it in Austria. Austria satisfies Hold all on. of those criteria and were more pro-lockdown. Hold on. So those are the three criteria. But also these um these people had a sense of continuity in society so they felt like okay what what's what's society going to look like for my for future generations for my children right how am i 
excuse me, if there were people that had to go out and outside of the M25 bubble where they don't have the option of being able to work from home, mm. right? They're actual plumbers or they're working construction and they have to go out and physically work, mm. right? And they have to earn a living. Do you think, but this is the thing, when you, once you stratify the kind of people that you're talking about here, which I completely agree with, you know, left-wing social, champagne socialists, then you understand. I mean, I've had a bunch of odd jobs in my life and I say, if you really want to pulse of this country and where this country is going, look at the construction industry because it's predominantly male, it's predominantly people that are using their hands and it's predominantly an industry that aspects of it really do need technological um, change, but it's also dying, mm. right? And I genuinely believe that. And so you have these people ticking along, but a lot of people that don't have the option to stay at home, work work from home, right? Have have internet access and all of these glossy things. They completely disagreed with the Conservative Party, and a good chunk of that were well, the party policy during the COVID. Or a good chunk of that were actually traditional Heartland Labour voters. That's what makes the difference. Mm. So I think, you know, really, I, I think even the way we talk about politics now is insufficient because I don't think it actually accounts for the real stratifications in society. The traditional left-right divide no longer applies in the same way that it does. You don't have coal miners and like you did in the, the, the sort of 50s and 60s, right? You have a completely different generation. Now a lot of people that I see that are left-wing are a bunch of brats raising middle-class families that don't understand what it is to work hard. And they're like, oh, but Esther, why are you like that? Guess what? I grew up in Ghana. Right? I've seen what real poverty looks like. I'm always thinking, how can I prosper as a person? Because I have people to take care of back home. Right? I, I'm rooted in something where I, I know that pe other people depend on me. I didn't just you know, go live in a house, three bedrooms, go to a grammar school, go to university, but learn that the Tories are all evil and now feel like I have all the, the solutions to the world. Meanwhile, you're attacked at a blue- I feel very personally attacked right now. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> well, no, not you. But the thing is, and you know so the thing is as well, these people, the same people are never able to analyze their lives critically because all of them think that they have the solution to the world. They, they, they you know, they, they, uh, there's that, a, that, that was definitely me at 21. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. But it's like, uh, do not judge for the same measure that you judge, um, for the, with the measure you judge, the same measure shall be put to you. Or how dare you remove the speck from someone eye, someone's eye when there's a log in yours. A lot of these people don't have the ability to look at their lives critically and to be able to put things in check. I'm very, very hard on myself to the point that sometimes I feel like I need therapy for it. Not because I'm crazy, but because I feel a responsibility that if I want to see things get better, this, this starts with me. All of these people that said, you know, get the 15th jab, be locked down. You shouldn't be able to go out and work. How many of them were overweight? How many of them were smokers? How many of them had mental health issues that they were racked up with antidepressants day in and day out? Right? Quite, quite, How many people I'd go out and reasonable. exercise regularly? How many people saw the value in actually having the government outside of, of our lives in certain aspects so we can thrive and build something for ourselves and actually have a family and a legacy and build continuity and you know, con contribute to the positive values that have made our country and society great? Very, very few. Because people that are rooted in that, that have that kind of grounding, would never say that the government should have the ability to tell you to stay at home, not work, not provide for your family, shut down your business, mask up, get 20 or 50 jabs. I mean, it is absolutely obscene. Trust, trust the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, that's yeah. The, that's, that's, the bigger, like, that's the bigger headline of it. It's okay. just like, trust the pharmaceutical industry. Have you read the book Cracked? Uh, I haven't actually. It's a fantastic book. Um, Peter Hitchens actually recommended it to me and it talks okay. about the pharmaceutical industry and how it's doing Peter. more harm than good. And actually the efficacy of antidepressants is so heavily disputed and the evidence for its actual efficacy is so weak that placebo, sugar pills are, most, are just as effective. In many, many studies, the overwhelming majority of studies um, are Exercise just as effective as antidepressants. Thing, right? Sex. Sex. Sorry, I didn't mean to shout that. You know what? I'm about to go off. 
if you're a man, and I think, and the way depression is is kind of even characterized, it's very, we live in a very female oriented society now where mental health is looked at through the lens of women. Like, I think that's actually very bad. Male depression usually stems from a lack of, a feeling of helplessness and a lack of purpose. Men are purpose driven, right? But women, it's more of a sense of community, right? We're more, we're, we, we value relationships and we thrive best when we have good, healthy, functioning relationships. It's just a fact. And I tell, I tell men, if you think you are depressed, go to the gym, get a six pack, talk to women, even if you suck. I go to Kizomba and Salsa and Bachata lessons and I see so many autistic guys there and it makes me happy because you know that they'll never have an opportunity to dance close, like face to face with beautiful women and talk to them and all of that. But it's building their confidence, right? If you think, if you're a guy and you think you're depressed, get your body right, stop eating shit talk to women and try and have sex and try and build something, build a legacy for yourself because men, your legacy matters. Mm -hmm. Women, if you feel like, if you feel like you're depressed, get your body in shape, stop eating shit, get around, have a community of people that are strong and support you and love you. Embrace yourself, embrace your femininity, embrace your beauty, lean into your, your, your womanly power. Right. And you know, just, just keep yourself busy and keep doing things. And it's, it's different. I think the way men and women, handled should handle depression are completely different yeah yeah i mean i i would go as far as to say that like almost everybody needs a slightly different approach to it it's a very and sex everyone needs a bit of booty yeah um I mean, actually our generation is not having sex that's true that is concerning for them i feel bad for all you people out there yeah uh <laughs> the uh, like the i saw this really weird article from the guardian this morning yeah, there tend to be a few of those yeah, articles from the yeah, well, I mean, yeah i mean i used to want to work for them oh you poor thing i know um, i wanted to work for the un so. you want to work for the un yeah. oh well that's just as just as <laughs> it, it might be worse it might be worse <laughs> uh, yeah um but like i said it was about it was talking about like the the incel culture mm. and i was like i was sitting around thinking about it. it's just like how did we get to this position where like, I think it was like 28% of men just have no sex ever. Yeah. It's like more than, more than a quarter. I think it's like 18% of women. Suck, the women. <laughs> I'm saying this now, the ones that do, they're not, you know. Need more practice. Oh, maybe. Um, or some instruction. Yeah. Manual. A purpose. Yeah. Like, <laughs> a toolkit. A toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, but the- You like, know, most incels are actually not like white and sort of English and these recluse that people think of. Mm. They tend to be people from predominantly South Asian um, descent. Uh, because if you kind of stratify, stratify, stratify yeah, stratify um, dating preferences, um, they tend to be societally least desirable, tend to be um, Asian men and then... Really? Yeah, Asian That's men and then I think not too far, well, but quite a distance up is black women and then Asian women and then really, that's low on the list. Yeah, but but the thing is, also okay. you have to look at it from a cultural perspective as well. So you have to look at kind of um, uh, like society, societal perceptive perceptions of these groups of people, mm. and all of that. So it's it's a lot more intricate than that. And also you have to look at people from South Asian or men from South Asian backgrounds. They tend to because you know single motherhood rates, for instance, in like the Indian communities in the country, six percent. They tend to grow up in kind of. Uh, almost like a monocolored family unit. So they're very close and they're very preserved, but it's also a very kind of a unique culture. So they tend to want people from that cultural background. Or they find it really hard to relate. I mean, it's so multifaceted, right? Yeah. Um, but that is, in terms of the breakdown, that's what most most people find. Okay. I didn't know that. There yeah. you go. Every day's a school day. Um, 
But like, what do you think it is that that means that people don't have this purpose that you're talking about? Because I have a theory, actually. Mm. I have been, I don't know, about a month ago, I wasn't, I just like, I wasn't like struggling or anything, but I was just like not doing the things that I would generally consider to be what I, I want to do. Like I wasn't going to the gym as much. Mm-hmm. I wasn't reading as much. I wasn't like writing as much of my book. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just feeling a bit like sort of like in that, what do you sort of say? Don the flu or Don something. Don the flu, yeah, just And I found that what was, what was weird was like, I didn't shake myself from that. Yeah. Until I stepped away and was like, oh, fuck, no, I'm using my phone way too much. And I'm like mm, on my laptop yeah. way too much. And as soon as I, I gave my brain like 10 minutes, I was just like, like, it, like right in my journal one evening, I was like, what the fuck, Josh? Like, mm. what's going on? Like, sort your shit out. And then it was fine, right? But like, I, I genuinely feel like f- there's something about like the devices. Yeah. <laughs> like that the, the has they're this- They're programming it, your mind. It's not even programming your mind. It's almost like they're putting you in this like drone state where you have no reflection time. Yeah. So like, what do you think it is that ma- is making like people lose that drive and focus? They don't, un- they haven't understood the importance of having your kind of, life outside of social media or your, the life that you present on a screen as outside of that, mm. as solid as the life that you have on screen. So what I mean by that is, and it's easy to kind of fall into a pattern and kind of lose the balance. But if you find that you're not doing certain things that you would normally be doing a week, the first thing you probably should cut out is social media or at least get back, like prioritize your offline life mm. more than your online life. And I, I say this like, you know, I work in sort of broadcasting and media and this is what I do. And I'm eventually, you know, I started my Substack and I'm still gonna start putting videos and stuff. But I, I'm very disciplined with myself in the sense that I have to make sure I'm working out a certain number of times a week. Um, I have enough social contact with my friends and family. I, I, I keep in touch with people. I, I feel like I'm doing something that's community related that I think I'm giving back. You know, I have to make sure my outside life is good so that when I'm not online, I'm not thinking of coming back online. You need to actually live life and do life before you can even have something to give online, right? And most people kind of get into the cycle because it's so easy. You swipe up, you, you, you scroll Instagram and Twitter and you do all these things. And you don't really realize that you're actually eating into time that you can be doing to do life, right? You have, you have to find a balance. And I think, again, I don't think it's more important for men than women, but I think there are greater consequences for men than women for men than women. So for instance, men, when you're taking away your productivity from something that you would usually be building, for instance, that has real life costs. I can be, as a woman, with all due respect, I can meet someone, have kids and be a mom. That's that's my purpose set. I I already have a sense of purpose and drive and stuff like that. For a man, you know, for you to even get to the point where you're uh, attractive, charismatic, you know, settled enough, all of those things for a woman, the kind of woman that you want to even consider you, you have to build, you have to, you know, you, that is, the onus is on you. And it's not like you can say, oh, I got pregnant for nine months, so I had to take a nine month break. No, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have that, right? You don't have that, that kind of burden. Um, so yours, yours is just build, 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 push, grow, inspire, you know, that, that is literally it for men. Um, I think a woman, you know, women being on social media, I think more it comes, it's, it's kind of like a, it's, it plays with your mind, right? You see all these glossy images of these beautiful women on Instagram and you're just like, oh, I have to look like that, but it's a filter, right? I've never seen, most of the most beautiful women I've seen on social media, you see them in person, they look like tree box. 
Actually, I've had that not happen like specifically, but I mean, even just like dating profiles. Yeah. The amount of times I've turned up for dates and like, yeah. it feels like I've just wasted like an hour because yeah. I arrive and I'm like, oh, you're not, you don't look like where your the fit gut, picture. Where did your gut come from, my dear? Like, where, where, you don't look like your picture. <laughs> yeah. These were clearly taken a year ago before you put on some weight. Yeah. <laughs> that's not always the case, to be fair, that's unfair. But then, and then like, I'm oh, like, the you're not, you're not attractive yeah. in person. And yeah. I'm like, what am I doing here? Yeah. And then I sit there and I feel kind of bad because I'm like, I am being a horribly boring date because I'm just not as engaged because I feel like I've been lied to. Yeah, it's fraud. Like, it's fraudulent. Yes. But the thing is, I, I mean, back in the day for the Jail very- Jail catfishers, no. <laughs> find them. Or f- I, I genuinely believe that I said this. But back in the day when I used social media for all of 48 hours, uh, not social media, dating apps for all of 48 hours, I, I would download it, get really uninspired and then delete it. I, I just couldn't stay on it. For some reason, there was something about my personality that just couldn't do it. I don't like them either. I used to have- makeup free picture, one or two makeup free pictures. And I would have a body picture and I'd have a picture with my friends and I'd have a picture like, you know, dolled up. And I just, I did it because I, I don't know why I felt ethically it was my duty. I had a moral responsibility to make sure you see all sides of me. I had one with my, my bloody teddy bear. So I'm just like, hmm, this is me with glasses. This is like, honestly, I just wanted them to know because I, and at the time my hair was relaxed as well. So I had one with an Afro. I was like, I, I want you to see as much of me as possible. Cause I never want you to leave your house and then feel like you're meeting a different person. I think you really have to respect people and value people's time. Again, women get real with yourself. Like we live in an era where it's so easy to be attractive. Yeah. It's so easy, especially for women. It's like, and the thing is, I'm not even gonna go by like dress size. I'm like, my dear, get your height, stand on a weighing scale, check what height, what weight you should be at your height. You'd be like, oh, but I'm muscly. No, ma'am, that's squish, that's fat, right? You know, just be honest with yourself. Look, just be aspire to be a healthy body weight. You don't have to have big, b- b- like, boobs or, like, Kardashian size titties or ass, I mean, or any of that sort of stuff. Just be honest with yourself. Keep a healthy, fit, attractive body, you know. You don't even have to wear that much makeup. But learn, learn it, learn what, go to the hairdresser and be like, look, do a hairstyle that fits my face. Avoid all the ridiculous unnatural colors like blue and red. Lay off the tattoos, I would personally say, just because I think, you know, a blank canvas is still the most beautiful. There's a reason why top models aren't tatted up from head to toe. You know, just do these things and you are in the top 20% of women. But no, you have all these people, especially women that don't feel like they have to try hard. And they're just like, oh, these men ain't this, all these, like, you know, I just, I just think it's crazy. Um, and again, I say this to someone like, I'm not saying, this is not, I don't have any skin in the game saying mm-hmm. these things. Like no one's paying me to say it. I'm just saying it because to be real. And this is the truth. The number of guys that I've met that have said, I've had a woman catfish me. And I swear to God, one guy was so angry. He was like, he literally went up to her, I was like, what are you doing here? She was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Alyssa. It's like, no, I was waiting for this person. What are, you, what are you doing here? And he literally went off at her. What did she say? And she was like, but that is me. It's like, no, that's not you. That's not, he was proper like Londoner, right? That's not you, fam. That's not you. Get out, get out. I'm waiting for this girl. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what? Well, like she was gonna like unzip like a sun and like, like the real girl was gonna like step exactly. out. Hi. <laughs> um, but you know that I mean? would be such a funny fucking show. Oh my yeah. God. Channel four, oh, if you're honestly, listening. And please make, please make it, please make it like proper Londoners. Like what are you doing here? What are you doing here, fam? This is what I'm looking for, Emily. Who are you? Who are you? This is Laura. No, I'm looking for Emily. I so he explained it to me and I could not believe he was telling me this. And he, I remember on the, on the day he was like, 
Because I actually, I'm not gonna lie, I went on this date as a social experiment because I just wanted to, I, I, sometimes I do that. Um, but anyway, and it was actually very successful. Um, but he, he was like, your lips are real, yeah? I'm like, yes, my lips are real. He's like, that's all right, because you know, I've seen these girls with the big lips. And I just, I literally couldn't believe it. I've heard so many horror stories from guys about dates. I had this one friend from uni tell me he went on a date with this girl who was bragging about a guy that she slept with four nights before. Oh, okay. I've never had that happen before. That is. Disgusting. I mean, like if a girl is saying that, is that like... Disgusting. You can say it. It's gross. No, I was just thinking, is that her just being like, if you don't have sex with her that day, like, then she was fucking with you. Like, <laughs> I, I, but the thing is, women, we don't understand men these days. I don't think men understand women. I don't understand women. I think you have a better grasp of women than you think you do. I genuinely think women don't understand what's important to men. I don't think they understand. What do you think is important to men? This is good. Oh my God. <laughs> no, but in that particular instance, I don't, I don't think they understood how hardwired men are to find that absolutely repulsive, right? Men are not fond of promiscuity. That's not to say they hate promiscuous women. Obviously, promiscuous women have a role to play in society because if you've got that, it's just scratch. She's there. But a man, if you're looking for a long-term, secure, stable relationship, that kind of, saying that to a man is the most off-putting thing on the planet. Yeah. It, it's, I, I can't even, it's like a man just meeting you and smacking your ass in public, <laughs> which has happened to me on a date. <laughs> what? Yes, he was... An utter barbarian, um, but we're not going to go there. I literally like scuffled him. He was like, be a good girl. And I was like, oh my God, did you just smack my ass? I swear to God, I scurried oh. home. I was traumatized. What do I think is important to men? Respect. I think that's even more important than love, probably. Genuine respect. Like a man, because the thing is, I don't think women understand how much men have to give up to be the kind of men that they would even talk to, right? Women, you just have to be hot. You can be 19, 20, 21. The bare minimum, the bare, bare minimum. Oh, guys, look, like, it does not matter if you're hot. Exactly. It doesn't matter how boring, how, how awful your more. conversation is, you right? Guys need. will try. But it's they true. will sit there and they will, they try. will try. They will, like, they will <laughs> bleed the conversation. Yeah. It's true, though. I mean, obviously, the higher up you go and the more criteria you want, you need more, more character. You need to be a good person. You need to be loyal. You need to have certain values. You need to make sure that your vision for your life aligns with the person you're with. Obviously, you know, they're layers to it, but at the bare minimum, you just gotta be fine. You just have to be a hot woman, right? Men, a 20 year old man is fundamentally useless. And I say this, my brother's 23. I told him you're a fetus, but you're building. And I can see that. And you have the character traits that make you a desirable man. You're a focused guy. You're disciplined, you're a gentleman, right? You know how to treat a woman. A lot of guys don't even get that, right? Up until the point they're 30 when it clicks because they have enough stock in like career and you know savings and all of that to actually start being a pr pr prospect for women so i say this as i say this because i don't think women genuinely understand that i don't think women understand how miserable it is to be a 20 year old guy no one is in your dms no one sees you exist you send these girls messages and they have a guy with a lamborghini on instagram saying a similar message and they're like whoop yeah i want that guy you know who, what i mean who are they gonna go for precisely it doesn't matter how much of a chat i mean unless you're ridiculously good looking as a guy and you go to the gym which again puts you in the top 15 percent, but then you still have disparities your age and all of that there's still things to work around. Yeah, but um, you've so, climbed some sort of like, not to not to use Jordan Peterson's terminology since uh, people don't like him, but <laughs> you're climbing some sort of hierarchy. Exactly. But women, so women don't understand that grind. Women will see guys in the late 20s, early 30s, oh yeah, he's great. Do you know what it's taken for him to get there? And most guys are even mediocre at that, but they still have to do it because they know to some extent it's important. Um, so respect, just respect. Men, men value respect. 
men value loyalty. I think men love deeper than women. I generally do. I think women, we love. That's interesting. I do. I do think so. Like, I think it's different. I think men love deeper than women initially. And I think women, as we get more kind of embedded into your life and who you are as a person, that that's when we love selflessly. Mm. But I don't think it's there from the beginning because women bear a greater risk for being with a man than men do. And it's just the fact, pregnancy, family, emotional trauma, all of that. So I think- Just the time viable to have a child. Exactly, exactly. That, and I think this is hardwired into our biology. So men value respect, men value loyalty, um, men value femininity. And I just, I think those are the three main things. And I don't think it's really difficult. I mean, I, women mess this up so many times and I maybe it's because of the background that I'm from and how I grew up and the, the dynamics I saw with my parents. Women don't realize how easy it is. Right, I know, I know easily. I can. I'm, I'm, I, I did the social experiment. Where, well, it wasn't actually a social experiment because I was a bit retarded. They came to my car and it, there was this flashing light saying "change oil," and I was like, okay. So I was going to buy some cooking oil and pour it all over my bonnet, and I could just hear my father screaming, "No, do not do that!" So I, I literally walked up to the nearest guy I saw and I was like, "I'm so sorry, my car is saying this. Could you please help me? I have no idea." Walked into Tesco with me, bought the oil, put it in my car, changed it, and then asked for my number. But I made his day, right? Because it's like. A guy, guys like it when you make them feel like they're an authority on something because they've had to work to get to where they are. It's, 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 it's just thing. Men like to be responsible for things and feel like they're an authority figure. And women don't get that. Just show a man respect, show a man that he's the man in your life, show a man that you're loyal and that you value him. If he's not into social media, stop posting first traps online or soliciting male attention or making him feel uncomfortable or making him feel like he's not the only man or the only option in your life. And be feminine, it's not difficult. It's not necessarily having to cook and clean because if you're with a guy that's, you know, that's not even a big deal to him, he has a cleaner or whatever, you know, that's not, that doesn't make the difference. But sometimes it could just be, would you like some coffee this morning? I know you had, you, you didn't sleep very well. But do you know what I mean? You, How many you're men? So, you're so unbelievably right. You see, if a girl brings me coffee in the morning, I'm immediately like 50% more in love. But the thing is, I'm like, oh my God, thing. yes. But, but, like, <laughs> but if you notice, like, he didn't sleep well at night, like, he was tossing and turning, he kept going up and stuff like that. Something as simple as like a back rub, right? Just being like, oh, you know, your shoulders are a bit tense, or, you know, I'm, I have really small hands, but I'll just try and make an effort. The fact that you're making an effort, or the fact that you're saying, I know you have a really long day ahead, you know, do you want me to order something, or even take out if you want to do that, or do you want some coffee in the morning? These things, women don't realize how much of a difference it makes because you you genuinely care. I was telling um, a friend of mine, I was like, when you go on a date, let the guy talk. And she was like, why? You know, I want to talk about myself and my career. I was like, I get it, but, He'll ask. Do, do the 25-65 rule. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of men don't move through the world feeling like they're very valued, right? This guy that I met that was part of the social experiment, he started up a real estate company and he was just, you know, doing buy-to-lets and all of that. And he was talking about it. I was like, that's really interesting. I'm so, I'm really impressed. You've done that all that in a year. I was like, yeah, but it's really difficult. I was like, no, but you'll be fine. You've done all this in a year. Come on. like you. And he just, his face lit up. It was like it was Christmas for him. And it's because I took a genuine interest in Like at some point in the day, he started showing me pictures of his baby nephew. And he doesn't even Aww. like babies. He does not even like babies, right? He doesn't like kids. He was just like, this is the only kid that makes me smile. So, oh my gosh, you know what? You're going to be a great dad. It's like, I'm not really sure. I was like, no, you will. I know you don't like other people's kids, but this is your blood. So, you know, but I took a genuine interest in him. And I, and I, it wasn't because I was like trying to play him or whatever. I, I, I was, I genuinely, I, I, I've been raised to believe that valuing people's time is absolutely important and you have to show people that you value and respect and care for them. And I, this, these things are basic, right? 
my mom, I, I, could, I could go to a supermarket and I'll see something like a new jam spread or whatever. I'm like, mm, oh, I think my dad or my mom would like this and I'll just buy it for them. You can do that for manual seeing and just buy, oh, I saw this and I thought of you because I thought you might like it. And it doesn't seem like much, but the fact that he knows that you're thinking about it, right? And it's like a two pound jam from Costco. That makes a difference. Mm. That's all it is. That, that literally, ladies, that's all there is to it. Okay. Um, and then uh, <laughs> like, I can hear the, the 80% male audience screaming at me. Why? <laughs> what do women want? <laughs> oh, what do women want? You've given me a lovely answer and we'll probably have to make this the last because we've managed to like smash way past. I didn't realize how long we'd be talking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, la- like, yeah. Final, final two questions. Uh, let's try and do it in five minutes. Mm-hmm. What do women want? And oh, can we even do? No, I tell you what, you have to come back so we can talk about God. Okay. <laughs> you want to talk about God? Yeah. Well, no, I do, but I mean, we need more than five minutes. From, from an Anglican. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Well, my best friend has calls me about four to five times a week, and we talk about the possibility of a God existing. He's, oh, okay. that's uh, really he's a Christian and is attempting to convert me. Yeah, that's a bad strike. Tell him to stop. Well, no, not convert me, but he's attempting to get me to confront what I actually believe about it. Yeah. Which and I it's a question which was not asked very much in my life. Yeah. And coming from somewhere where people blew each other up over religion, I didn't enjoy it as a child. <laughs> um, so I was, I'm, my, my brain is resistant. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of truth to what he's telling me. No, and he is I, just I, encouraging me to like do my just, research. Just explore it. Yeah. I don't I, I I wish I could have like a podcast series where I could just mm-hmm. encourage people to explore that because, you know, they're just like, oh, it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. You shouldn't believe in anything because it doesn't exist. And I was like, okay, prove it. Prove it doesn't exist. Right. It's, it's the same thing. It's yeah. both sides of the same coin. We can go back and forth on the same argument. Anyway, what do women want? Yes. Women want <laughs> security. Um, that's, that's that's one of the things. I mean, you have to look at what women want. You have to understand in terms of what we fundamentally fear. Like having a child before the advancement of med- medicine mm. would, would have killed us, right? We make huge sacrifices to be with a man. So um, being with a man, there has to be a level of security there in terms of how you treat us, how you protect us, how you provide for us. Um, and that fundamentally comes from a kind of a cluster of personality traits or character traits that men really should have, especially if they want the kind of women that they want. If you want women just for sex, that's a completely different conversation. Um, but if you're talking about women as in a long-term relationship with a beautiful feminine woman that's on your wavelength, you need to provide her with a sense of security, which means you need to have, even if you don't have like this high-flying CEO career, you need to have the character traits of someone that's capable of being able to always provide and to protect. So you need to be disciplined. You can't be fat because if you don't, if you're not disciplined with your body, you can't be disciplined with providing for a family or a woman, right? You need to be confident because someone who's confident and outgoing is going to raise hell, go, going to go through hell to provide for their family, right? Um, you need to be a man of your word. So you need to have, you know, you need to be honest and loyal and all of that. Even if it pisses her off, you know, you realize you can walk through London and get stabbed. Are you scared of a five foot two blonde woman yelling at you? You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. Most men cower from from women, and it's just like you realize what you're cowering from. Are you dating like Rasputin? Your, your woman is like five foot three, and brunette, like you know. Um, so I think it's more about the the provision and the, the the character traits, and also you have to have a sense of 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 purpose and a mission outside of your woman, mm. right? I say woman. I sound like such a caveman, but it's true. I don't respect a man that makes me his mission. I don't. I want to know that you are striving for something, even if it's building a shed, 
right? Even if it's buying a new car, even if it's building a company, I need to know that outside of me, you're good. I can't be your focus. Like I, I don't like men that are always messaging me, right? I just tune out. I'm like, aren't you busy? Are you doing something like building an empire? And the kind of men that have that approach are a little bit arrogant, but I think that's a good thing because they know that their legacy means something. I don't think we talk to enough to men about legacy, right? And it's because we're living in this diluted world where even the conversation of a woman taking her husband's last name when they get married is like, oh, it's misogyny. Well, legacy is very focused on, you have to, you have to consider your own mortality. Yes. Which is something that I have discovered through COVID that many people are not willing to yeah, confront. Exactly. And they're worried about it or they're like, they're scared, they're scared of, they're, they're, they they fear aging. I don't think aging is a problem. Actually, I, I enjoy it. I think it's, you know, the older you get, the wiser you get. It's fun. You know more things. I like not being a stupid 20 year old. It's fun. Exactly. Um, but I think men should have a look at their legacy. And I think that should be the biggest thing that you understand. If you're a man, that's like, because the thing is women are also, we have we have an ego, right? The man we're with is kind of like a status signal to the world. In the same sense that a man who's with an ugly woman is sending a different status signal than a man who's with a 20-something-year-old hot, juicy-looking model. You know? And it's true. Like, and, But we want to be with a man that's like, I'm proud to have his children, right? Because this is not a man. He's not a subject of ridicule. He's a serious man. He's a man of competence, right? And all that comes into the whole protection aspect. You can't, you can't protect and provide if you're incompetent, if you're in, undisciplined, and if you're disloyal you're not a man of your word right all of that is wrapped into one you need to be a solid guy you need to know that you're a guy who people can go to for something people can depend on even if they don't like what you have to say they know you're going to be honest you have to have these character traits and women will naturally gravitate towards you because they're few and far between i know my brother's gotten women because he didn't ask them for nudes because the bar is so low for how men and women treat each other that women is that, is that the bar the bar is in hell it's like he didn't ask her for nudes and so she was like oh yeah come over he's like what wait what I don't know you you're someone's daughter why am I going to ask you for nudes that was enough yeah right but the, the, again is that how low the bar is the bar is low but the thing is all the things I'm describing that is my brother but he's 23 so he's already ahead of the curve mm. but that's because Culturally, psychologically, he just he grew up in, a, in, a, in a, an environment that embedded these sorts of values in him, right? Most, 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 most people don't. They don't mm. have that. Yeah, I guess the single the single motherhood rate through the nineties, I mean, probably has contributed to that. Yeah. Actually, now yeah. that I think about it, because I never had anyone, I never had anyone say like what it meant to be a man. Mm. No one talked. No me one told. Yeah. The the first people that I heard talking about that were Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Yeah. And that was when I was like 23, 24. And that was the first people that were ever like speaking about that. And I was like, and like, well, my best friend as well, to be fair to you. But I was just like, no one, no one spoke no one to said, me Yeah, like no this. one said this. Yeah. No one, no one, like the only yeah. thing I've heard about masculinity my entire life is that it's toxic. Yeah, exactly. But that is the problem. But the thing is, the women complaining about toxic masculinity go for toxic men. Because yeah. they're not attracted to these weak soy boys. Uh, and I, I often say that, and the thing is, men have this idea that getting with a woman or being all the things that I just described for women to want is a mammoth task. And I really don't think it is. I think it's- I think it's also like, however large you consider the task to be, it's worth it. It's worth it. And also, <laughs> if you le- you naturally have it in you, 
men are not when you find yourself getting depressed because you don't have much a lot to do that's your male imperative saying something to you it's like lighter blinking right you just have to lean into your masculinity you don't have to do much in the sense of actually constructing it you have to do much in terms of building it but actually getting the drive and the focus and the determination to actually be a black character i've, I've described you just have to lean into what you already have i often say like people are like oh but actually you have such high standards i'm like i really don't all i look for mutual attraction same vision and values for our life that's it because I, that, that, those are the foundations that will keep a marriage together. Mm. And the vision and the values is, is, you know, because I'm a Christian, obviously, I, I look for someone who sees our marriage as not, not just two people pairing up, that, but we're entering an institution and that institution is bigger than us. And then we have people like our family, like our children that depend on the solidness of that institution. So once you look at it from that approach, it means a lot more. Right. And it's a lot it's it's a lot more meaningful and you're part of a bigger structure that you don't feel like you're isolated. And like, oh, he left the toilet seat up. I'm going to divorce that sort of flimsy kind of um, naive um, outlook. And I say, look, I would be with a plumber who didn't have a degree, who didn't have any post-secondary school education. But he was the man of, of vision and of purpose and of drive that I was describing. It's not that difficult. Well, that feels like a nice place to leave things. We've just tipped past 90 minutes. <laughs> um I hope everyone's still listening. I know we stopped talking about politics a long time ago. I know, I know. For some, how, I don't know how I always get into social stuff. I think it's because it's a bit more interesting. Well, I think it's because you're willing to like actually talk about it. Yeah. And a lot of people just resist like even having that kind of conversation. Like even if they think the opposite to you or think like maybe differently to you, like people just, like I said, there's a lot of conversations that people are unwilling to have. Mm, absolutely. Which is fantastic for me because it means I can have them in the spaces that, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. gap in the market and all yeah. that. But um, yeah, Esther, thanks so much. Thank it's been so much fun. Um, do you want to like tell people where to find you online and stuff? Yeah. So if you go on to uh, my Twitter, Esther K underscore K, that's, I'm pretty active. I'm also active on Substack, Esther Krakow. Um, You find my YouTube videos. I'm a talk TV contributor. So you see me on the talk or Piers Morgan Uncentered as a contributor. Um, I also appear on Sky News Australia and I write for the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. So you can find me doing all sorts of bits. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.